Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Hello, everybody. We are back with yet another episode of this month in sales enablement. We are not running out of months. We're not running out of insights. See who we are again, straight out of Sydney, Australia, and LA, or should I say Palm Springs, California? Palm Springs, yes. That's right. <laughs> Joining me from over there is Devin McDermott. Welcome to the show, Devin. Thanks for coming back. I'm always not sure if you will be coming back, but you never disappoint me, so very much appreciate it. Felix, you know I'm delighted to be here. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is the most fun day of the month for me. I learn a ton. I have such a great time chatting with you, so you're stuck with me for a minute. Awesome. Well, on that note, talking about fun, we have insights, we have reports, we have books, we have jobs, we have news, we have events, we've got social bus. It does not stop. It's the all-you-can-eat version of sales enablement. And we will not waste any more time because we've got such an action-packed agenda. So let's dive right in into the review of the podcast episodes from last month. We had a bunch of really interesting guests joining the show. And the first one was Alex Salop. And I feel like Without actually them being a sponsor, that company that starts with mind and ends with tickle actually gets a decent amount of airtime. We talk about them a lot. But I had Alex Salop, which is the VP of readiness on the podcast. And let's take a listen of what he had to say. Knowledge is watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos about how to take a jump shot. Skills is going to the gym when nobody else is around and taking a hundred jump shots. And then behavior is actually being in a game with some guy on your back and trying to hit that turnaround fadeaway jumper, right? And if you can do that third one, that's really where the money's at. That's what counts. All right, all right. So really interesting analogy. I am a sucker for good sales enablement analogies. Really illustrates those points. And we've got another one coming up as well, not from the world of sports, but from the world of cooking for a change. But <laughs> just, to, just to talk about Alex's insight here, knowledge versus skill versus behavior, I think really interesting to hear. From your experience, like how often do companies actually apply that lens to knowledge, skills, and behavior? And how is that incorporated typically in the sales readiness program? I think it goes back to the best enablement and readiness programs can only be as effective as your organizational strategy, processes, and data that's available. So if those are changing rapidly, that's not a bad thing. There's still a lot we can do as long as enablement is plugged in early on to those changes and enablement understands that what we need to do is so much more than providing folks with the resources to do the thing. But actually, how do we build the skills? How do we give folks the opportunity to practice that skill in a curated environment, demonstrate it with customers, provide them coaching? And I think readiness is that like holistic view of preparing someone to do the thing in real life. And so often I think enablement stops at the, here's the resource, we got you covered, here's the technology, here's the training, go do it, you're gonna be amazing. So it's important to think about that holistic journey of actually preparing someone to be effective in role, which is not always easy to do. And I think the biggest challenge to getting there is time. If mm. you have a company that's moving quickly, if you have an organization that's shifting strategy, you're likely just getting to the point of, 
here's the resource, here's the training. You're smart, you'll figure it out. And I love the idea of a separate readiness function, but also thinking about how do we bring the two worlds together so that enablement is sales readiness. It's Mm. getting our teams prepared to be super effective at what they're doing, but it's not always easy. And I think time and speed in an organization can keep us from getting to that next stage where practice makes perfect. And if we don't give folks the opportunity to do that, they're practicing with real deals, which could be an issue. Yeah, I think it's really interesting from my point of view, also getting insight into organizations that aren't very mature from a sales perspective is that the more mature an organization is from a sales and sales enablement perspective, the more granular that view becomes of knowledge, skills, and behaviors. And I think if you take the lowest maturity level where the sales manager or the sales leader just has that attitude of, okay, we just hire people that have a good track record and then we just go out and do their thing and they bring in the money. I think that's one of the end of the extreme. And then as Alex outlined, having that view of knowledge being acquired through training, skill being practiced in safe environments and through coaching and then that behavior being established and reinforced. I think that's certainly best practice. And I think really something that any sales organization at any sales enablement function should be gunning for to establish. Yeah. Now onto the next insight, which I said was another great analogy, this time delivered by Aaron Evans and not from the world of sports, but from the world of food, which is something I can very well relate to. So let's take a listen. A really good way to think about it is like baking a cake. There's three parts to it, right? Number one is the list of ingredients. And that's your qualification methodology. So you probably hear things like pants, you probably hear things like bants or medic. So that's the list of ingredients. Here's all the things I need to bake the cake. If I don't have those things, I can't bake the cake. And then you've got the instructions to baking the cake, right? Which is turn on the oven, whisk the eggs, pour the flour in. That's a sales process. So that's literally a step-by-step guide of what you need to do within that opportunity or this analogy of the cake. And then you've got the sales methodology, which is how you do it, right? So how do you whisk the eggs to get those nice fluffy peaks? How do you sift the flour to make sure that every single grain is separated so it's light and fluffy when it comes out the back? So that's the skill and the competency that's associated with it. So they're the three parts. Now, what businesses often do is they conflate those three things. So they go, we've got a sales process. You don't. You've got qualification methodology. Or we've got a sales methodology. or something. You don't. You've got a sales process. We encourage businesses to really be conscious about separating those three things out because they're very different, but they also need to work in harmony as well. Yeah. So Aaron Evans, awesome person to follow on LinkedIn if you don't follow him already. So he runs a sales enablement consulting business that's really focused on the hands-on coaching side of things. So they work with sales leaders on establishing a methodology and really embedding that within the sales organization. And he also runs a YouTube channel, which I can also highly recommend which breaks down sales methodologies and the history of sales methodologies and other things really down in a really engaging and digestible format. So highly recommend it on that front. So he talked about the difference between qualification process and methodology. And what I find quite interesting and something that I've come across quite often as well is that there is oftentimes a misunderstanding of the degree of coverage you are able to achieve with the methodology compared to the sales process. What I mean by that is that oftentimes a sales process is more elaborate than a methodology. So the methodology doesn't cover all stages of the sales process. 
in which case you either need a complementary methodology that covers those areas or you need to create your own custom one. From your experience in organizations that you've previously operated in, so you've operated in the enterprise space, but also in the startup space, how often do you see sales methodology really covering the entire sales process? And how often have the businesses that you've interacted with purchased an out-of-the-box methodology versus actually developed their own? What's been your experience there? So I've seen every flavor of this, and I'm sitting in an organization now where we're rolling out Challenger, but we need to customize it for our business. And that's something that I've yet to do in my career. So it's an interesting experience to see like, hey, how do we pull in the right pieces of each methodology to make it work for our unique sales cycle and our customers? I've also purchased out of the box Challenger, which seems to be where the organizations I, I sit land. And I actually loved that. I loved having that white glove service, having folks that have done it before who took the time because we were paying them, but took the time to really understand our businesses, our teams, the nuances of how we engage with our customers. If I could do that every time, I would, because of course I learned so much from that experience on best practices for rollout. It saves a ton of time from a content development perspective. But again, it really allows you to immerse your organization in that methodology, where if you're building it in-house on the enablement side, hopefully in partnership with sales leadership and rev ops, it might take a little bit longer. You might not have the buy-in from marketing, but if you're spending big money on an out-of-the-box solution from a, a provider, you're likely to have the whole company bought in. So I've definitely seen that. But one interesting thing, I loved this analogy, and I wish I had heard it years ago because I reported into a leader who was not a salesperson, who could not wrap their head around the difference between qualification, process, and methodology. And I did everything. I built charts. I did explainers. I tried to tell a story about it. This would have saved me, I think, weeks of time and probably a lot of gray hair. So loved that. I will be using it. But I think it really depends on the business buy-in and, again, understanding what's the right fit. I think out-of-the-box pure play methodologies are rarely just going to be the right fit for any business. There has to be a strategic element of how are we running deals? How mature is our sales process? How mature are our sellers? And do we have organizational buy-in to make it work? Yeah, awesome. Of course, we will also share all the resources that we mentioned in this show, also through the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter on LinkedIn. So if you're keen to get links to all of these items that we cover, please make sure to subscribe. Another comment coming from Paul Butterfield, who has also got an episode coming up on the State of Sales Enablement podcast. Awesome. He mentioned several methodologies I've worked with were process agnostic enough that it was possible to get coverage through process stages. Thoughtful customization as key. Could not agree more with that. Thanks for your comment, Paul. Next up is a clip from my interview with John Moore, the artist formerly known as The Collaborator. He doesn't go by that name anymore, but to me, he will always be The Collaborator, just simply because of the way he operates. And we had a great chat about just in general, how to elevate the sales enablement function and the sales enablement profession. We also talked about diversity and enablement as part of that. Let's take a listen of what he had to say. Unless you're just a business creating just this simple widget day in and day out, and you don't really need to come up with new ideas, you can't succeed. Your competitors are going to beat you day in and day out if you don't hire and build and develop that diversity in-house. All right. So diversity as a competitive advantage. So you have hired lots of people throughout your career. 
what's been your experience in structural effort being made within businesses to incentivize diversity and to make sure that diversity is a consideration throughout the hiring process? What's been your experience in that front? Has that been incentivized in some shape or form by the businesses you've been working with? I'd say it's definitely been a key area of focus where uh, previous organizations I've worked in have used tools to ensure diversity in resume scanning and hiring processes. The tool we used was called Brick. I don't have a point of view on it, but it ensured that you were looking beyond any sort of information about folks that may skew your point of view. And I think diversity in general is key. Different points of view, different experiences, different folks coming into an organization are essential to doing incredible things. But it's certainly a key area of focus in most businesses and, again, in organizations that I've worked in. And on the enablement side, John in particular is doing some incredible work there. And he even speaks about the work he did on himself, taking feedback on what could I be doing differently and better to be more inclusive, to bring unique points of view into my business. And I, I try to follow that as well and really ensure my hiring practices are not swayed by any sort of unconscious bias that I may have. That's right. That's right. I personally always feel a bit awkward, slightly awkward talking about the topic, being a middle-aged white dude, speaking to another middle-aged white guy about diversity. But I think it is a topic that's been important to me, like in hiring decisions in the past as well. And I actually found myself not necessarily having like gravitating towards people like me, or maybe those people that I hired were like me without actually me realizing it. But right. yeah, as you said, I think the business case for diversity is pretty straightforward. There's data and research from McKinsey that actually indicates that businesses that have a more diverse leadership structure perform better and have a better bottom line. So I think that's pretty straightforward. I think from that point of view, on a senior level, the incentive should be given. I think mm -hmm. from my point of view, what enablement or the power that enablement really has in the diversity discussion is that because we are facilitators and because we build connections throughout the business and have to be really strong in actually creating communication channels, we have the opportunity to actually give people a voice that might not necessarily always be heard. And they're not yeah. necessarily the people that talk the loudest and the fastest and mm -hmm. get the most attention that way. So I think in that sense, we have from a communication point of view, a really strong position. And then, of course, with the hiring, you know, I think that's pretty straightforward. As you said, just make sure that we consider diverse points of views. But I think elevating those voices and also making sure that there is intellectual diversity, so to speak, in the yeah. discussion around self-performance, I think is something that we can certainly influence. Yeah. And, you know, in enablement hiring, not leaning too hard on like, this person must have all of these qualities and these things. Like, it's interesting to bring folks in from different backgrounds. You and I were talking about this earlier, folks that may never have worked in sales or L&D, but bring something to the table that can elevate the work that you're doing and bring a fresh point of view. It's really important to think outside the box across the board and to really be inclusive where you can. Well, another couple of episodes that have launched this month, which I would highly recommend anybody tuning into that haven't caught up on the State of Sales Enablement podcast fully yet. We had Sasha Deinert, also a German sales enablement person based out of the US. He was talking about what sales enablement can learn from the sustainability movement. Very interesting points of view there. And the other episode that we also ran was interviews with the founders of the enablement squad, Stephanie Middle and Matt Chelsea. Those guys provided some insights into the background of the community, how they started out what they're thinking behind the community is. So anybody engaged in the enablement squad or considering joining, definitely make sure 
you tune into that episode. Now, moving on to our next segment, we have a report to cover. And that one was the South Enablement Landscape Report 2022. So, Devin, what's happening in the South Enablement Landscape? Talk me through it. What isn't happening? This report, much like so many of the Sales Enablement Landscape reports, really dug into where we're at. Where we're at from a titling perspective, from a reporting structure perspective, salaries, everything in between. And again, I think these reports are just terrific from a general understanding and level setting point of view. The part that I love to key in on is those titles and roles and how they're evolving, along with challenges that are still holding strong. So cross-functional partnerships always come up as being one of the main challenges. But again, one thing I love to dig into is enablement titles, team structures. And there is a section in here that digs into each of those items separately. So again, who does enablement report into? What are some of the hot titles we're seeing? One thing that I'd love to see from some of these reports, and maybe it's just a matter of me spending some time and putting the data together myself, is the actual connector between how enablement titles relate to actual team structure and where they report. So I want the data story of how these things fit together. That's always something that's super interesting to me as you know, I come from the startup space. I'm constantly reshaping teams, thinking about where we need to go. So getting a sense of where the business is heading is always really exciting. But seeing the titles that were in here were really cool. So we're seeing more revenue enablement, go-to-market enablement leads, learning and development and enablement. And what I noticed in this report is it seems like, based on some of the titling, that enablement continues to move up in the organization. So we're seeing folks or titles that would typically sit in the senior leadership seat or executive leadership seat. I love seeing that, hence more of the broad titles beyond just sales enablement or customer success enablement. Again, some of the backstory or additional data to see where this all fits together would be game-changing. But that piece, again, always really exciting to me. The other piece that hit close to home was around common enablement challenges. So I really appreciated in this report, and this is across the board, not just this section, how they used quotes from folks about like what the specific challenges they faced were. And some of those challenges include lack of follow-through from frontline leaders, not being looped in at the right time, too much hitting our team too quickly, everything falling to enablement, things that shouldn't sit with enablement sitting there. And so from my seat, I love seeing some of those challenges. I probably shouldn't say that, but I always think those are challenges that are sitting with folks at startups. Again, that's typically where I sit, but it's interesting to see how these challenges are more broad across different types of companies, different organizational sizes. So I'm hoping in the next few reports, we can maybe bring folks together from some of those communities that we talked about to figure out how we get in front of those challenges early on so that we don't have to keep seeing them here. Felix, from your point of view, what stood out in this report to you? Yeah, I think, as you said, you know, the challenges are really interesting. The title changes. Just one thing that I always wished with these reports was that there was a further breakdown based on the organizational sizes, because yeah. that's where I see a lot of variance happening. I think the sort of challenges that you see in the startup world are very different to the enterprise level. And I think there is a lot of opportunity for the publishers of those sort of reports to add additional nuance and context. If they don't have the resources to create those further breakdowns, I think the sales enablement community is engaged enough if the data was made publicly available to actually create those further breakdowns. So I think that could be something to think about for 
the self-enablement collective, but also for other publishers of research to actually make the source data available so we can further drill down and, of course, with reference to the source of that data, provide further breakdowns and further insights. I think that could be an interesting one. A lot of things I kind of expected to see, like they were asking, for example, if respondents are keeping changes that they have incorporated as a result of the pandemic. And not surprising, 95% of respondents are keeping changes that have been introduced during the pandemic. So not a big surprise there because I think a lot of good things came out of the pandemic and we became really resourceful. So that's one. The other one, two thirds of enablement professionals feel like their team isn't big enough. Is it ever big enough? Devin, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but I, I'm obsessed with that. I think it's page 10 of the report because I have a couple of these bookmarked as I work at scaling my team is is the ratios. And I think the ratios of enablers to sales team size isn't always accurate. And I know there's a ton of articles about that as well. Like, can you mm. take a ratio-based approach to hiring or is it really based on business need and strategy? And so I'm always curious to see these as I go in to make my headcount plans. But again, to your point, I need more of the context to really make Mm. this a valid point. And in my research, obviously, they're not building this report for me, but I do like to leverage some of these stats. I go back and forth on this one a lot because, you know, Mm. you'll work with RevOps teams that have their formulas. They throw it into a spreadsheet. Oh, Devin, we're hiring 50 more reps next year. We got to get two more folks on your team. And I'm like, wait, I don't want folks in that seat. I want them somewhere else, but I can't Mm. rationalize that Mm. because we don't have the sales folks or customer success folks in-house. So I find this one to be really interesting and I I don't know what the right solution Mm. is. I know I'm kind of doing my own thing when it comes to staffing, but this one was an interesting one to me and just generally pretty interested in see how folks are doing this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think those sort of data points with the enabler per reps, this kind of key context I would be looking for with that one would be the amount of sales managers and how sales managers are being engaged because they're obviously the (laughs) amplifiers, right? So that one enabler is responsible for 200 reps doesn't mean that they need to be coaching 200 reps. That means just that you need to make more of an effort to actually scale your sales enablement program. So I probably sound overly critic. Like I appreciate the research that is being done here, but I do think there's so much opportunity to actually delve deeper into certain topic areas. And it would be great to engage the publishers of that sort of research to actually get your hands on that data and create some sort of further breakdown. I think that would be awesome. Felix, I feel like you could make that happen. Let's do it. If anybody's <laughs> listening from the Sales Enablement Collective, please. They're coming to Sydney actually soon with Sales Enablement events. So I might be waiting for them in some dark alleyway, trying to get my hands on the data. <laughs> so next up, ooh, one of my favorite segments. We've got a couple of book reviews. And the very first one we will be talking about is Pitch Perfect, which is your book. How to say it right the first time, every time. I love that. So tell me everything about this book. As you know, I can't wait to tell you everything about this book. So Pitch Perfect is a book by media coach and Emmy-winning journalist Bill McGowan. And reading this book felt like a private media coaching session from Bill himself. He's worked with companies like Meta, political figures, sales leaders, celebrities, everyone in between from someone like me sitting in a corporate office. So I highly recommend this one for anyone who is about to go on a job interview, present at work, speak on a panel, engage in a podcast interview, pitch themselves for a promotion. Anyone about to engage in any sort of meaningful interpersonal interaction or folks who just want to improve their daily communication style and skills, 
the purpose of this book is to help people with public speaking and how to make sure that they're more impactful by using better words, body language, vocal techniques, better storytelling, which I know you're going to talk about in a second. But the best part is that it's filled with relevant and very, very funny anecdotes that help to propel Bill's points forward. So our podcast, I feel like, is always so timely for things happening in my work and professional life. And I'm prepping for a handful of very big presentations over the next couple of months. And reading this book has been such a great primer to help me kind of recalibrate my approach and reflect on how I can enhance my personal presentation style. And I will say I am guilty, unfortunately, of a lot of the don'ts that Bill highlights in this book. And I do want to dig into a few of them. But before I do, my hot take here, this book is incredible. I needed this in my life and I highly recommend it to anybody that's listening and really anybody. So to give you a very brief taste of what's included, Pitch Perfect opens with a story. And it's a story about the author's time working at A Current Affair, which for folks that are either not from the U.S. or folks that might be too young for it, A Current Affair is an American, it's like a news magazine show that kind of skews a little bit more towards tabloid. It's from the 80s. I think it went through to the 90s. It's amazing. It's trashy. It's awesome. But basically, in the intro, Bill addresses his interaction with a convicted felon who If the felon used his words appropriately when confronted by a reporter, he would have been this guy with this amazingly savvy retort versus a guy who punched an innocent reporter, our author Bill, in the face. So as a follower of true crime stories, this one pulled me right in and I was like, let's do this. So Bill covers everything from presentation structure to the ideal timing for a presentation. And spoiler alert, Felix, I did not know this. It's 18 minutes. And that is oftentimes way too long. And so I do want to talk about some of, because this book is just, there's so much goodness, some of the do's and don'ts for communication. For example, if you get stressed out or nervous in public speaking situations, which I think all of us do, don't picture your audience in their underwear, which I know we're told to do, but instead focus on deep breathing, yoga type breathing, and really taking your time. Never comment on a question. So if you're presenting and someone asks the question, you're never supposed to say like, wow, Felix, what a great question. You're just supposed to answer the question because he says you're using that response to fill time. He says, use your pauses, be indulgent about that time that you're taking. And he underscores his teachings with some pretty bold and provocative statements. So he highlights that most presenters are the same in terms of the words they use, their general approach and tonality. And so if we want to be good speakers, we have to do the opposite, meaning getting outside of our comfort zone, making a concerted effort to avoid that conformity. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this. There's an Apple ad from the 80s and they took on the book 1984 and the whole thing was about like going against the brain, how conformity is so negative. So definitely made me think of that. But basically, Bill wants to be that ad, but for public speaking. So he wants us to move against the flow, do the opposite of what's expected and be as memorable as we can possibly be. And Felix, if you're thinking, well, I love my comfort zone and I never want to leave it, I don't think that's true, but Bill wants you to find another way. So a couple of quick tips that stuck with me, even the greatest presenters can't phone it in. They always need to be honing their skills. So he says the word practice probably 900 times in the book, and it's still not enough. He wants you to prepare, practice, practice again. He wants you to record what you are about to present, listen back, or even have like a friend listen to it and give you feedback. And I tend to do that quite a bit with my work presentations. I have folks that have no idea what I do, listen to the presentation and give me very harsh feedback because if they don't understand it, 
it means half my audience isn't going to understand it. He also gives some tips for speaking without fillers like ums and ahs. It's all about taking your time, not verbally tailgating where your mouth is moving faster than your brain, kind of what I'm doing right now, taking the time, slowing your pace, and being really thoughtful. And he also says words are calories. So be mindful of how you use them, how you spend them. Time, as we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, is the greatest gift you can give someone. So being succinct, communicating effectively, you are able to give your time or your audience back their time, which is an incredibly valuable gift. One other tip that I really loved, and then I'll give you just a couple takeaways and we'll move on to the next book, is tips for keeping your presentations super flexible. So he focuses on locking in your opening, locking in your closing, and making the middle of your presentation super flexible. So if you're speaking at a conference and the presenter before you went 20 minutes over and you now have 10 minutes where you thought you had 20, you now have built a presentation that can flex with the given time that you have. That was incredible. So again, a couple things that I thought were surprising. He wants us to move away from this concept of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them again, which I've been using for most of my career. He says that if words are calories, we are wasting calories by doing that. He wants us to not waste time agenda setting, get to the point, use storytelling, and never bury the lead. So in enablement, we are presenting all the time. We're presenting ideas. We're trying to get buy-in on charters and frameworks and strategies. And if we can do that in a super concise, consistent, and powerful way, it can be make or break for program buy-in. So the bottom line If you're public speaking or presenting on any topic in the future, read this book. Bill has the tips, tricks, pointers, best practices. I will reference this book. I actually got the Audible book and then bought the hard copy. I'm like, I want to see the pictures. I want to tab this. As I was listening to it, I was like shouting every time he said what not to do because of me. (laughs) So lesson learned. Again, always room for improvement. But I loved this book. Couldn't recommend more. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm sold. You delivered the perfect pitch coincidentally. Thank you. (laughs) Now, I think a lot of themes that you mentioned on what not to do that I also recognize on uh, what I might have been guilty of in the past, but also a lot of pointers that I think I have recognized also in the other book that I'll share later on. So it seems to be perfectly complimenting, but I'll I'll certainly take a look at this one. So uh, what's your rating out of five stars? I'm going to give this one a five. And if I could give it more, I would. I actually signed up to see if I could take a private class with Bill. I don't think I can afford it, but I'm going to try. So, <laughs> Well, you bought the audiobook and the hard copy. So my down payment. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Well, on that note, my book of this month is Storyworthy by Matthew Dix. And the subtitle is Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. Wow. It's quite a pitch right there. I think if you want to get better at telling stories, this is really the ultimate book because Matthew Dix is really a master in storytelling. And I didn't actually know this, but there's actually competitive storytelling. There's a organization called The Moth. I'm not quite sure what the acronym stands for, but they host events mainly around the US. I I don't think Mm -hmm. they operate internationally, but it's essentially like a comedy open mic night, Mm -hmm. but with storytelling, right? So you can write your name on a piece of paper, put it in a hat, and then they randomly draw people. And then those people have the opportunity to get on stage. And then there's a panel of judges, which then rates the storytelling. And if you win that sort of event, you then make it what they call a grand slam, 
which is a regional competition of all the winners from the different competitions. And they then get to compete against each other and you can then win the Grand Slam. And Matthew Dix has, I think as of the writing of the book, won the Grand Slam something like 25 times. So he's truly, he's kind of like the Roger Federer of storytelling. He really breaks down the methodology of storytelling, even though he says that storytelling is more art than science. He has a really succinct and analytical way of breaking down stories and explaining how to structure a high impact story. And the advantage that he really has is that he has a really exciting life or a really significant life in a sense that so many things happen to that guy that you think, I can't believe like one person had such bad luck. He has actually previously died in a car accident and then was revived in the ambulance. He has had crazy adventures of breaking down in the middle of nowhere and then using his McDonald's uniform to pretend that he was raising funds for a charity only so he could actually have the money to afford, keep on going and save himself from that situation. (laughs) So many crazy stories that guy has to tell. And he's obviously has that incredible pool to draw from. And he really breaks down how to do that in a high impact way. Now, the thing about this book is that if you want to be a storyteller and you want to do that in a private setting, it really hand feeds you all the different techniques and the methodologies that you need to do that effectively, right? So if you're sitting at a campfire with your friends and you want to tell a really engaging story, this book tells you exactly how to do that. If you want to do it in a business setting, I think some translation work is required and not everything that he tells can be applied one-to-one to to a business setting because the setting that he's kind of operating in is more for entertainment purposes, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about engaging the audience, being entertaining, and sharing insights into you as a person and the transformation that you're going through, which is essentially the essence of any story is the transformation that the person telling the story goes through. You can see that everywhere, like in all sorts of movies, especially, is that typically in terms of a structure of a good story, the beginning of the story is typically the complete opposite of the transformation that the person goes through by the end of the movie or by the end of the story. And he touches on the business context in a sense, but I think that's something that can be taken away from his structures that he provides is that whenever we tell a story in the business context, it should always be around a transformation. At the beginning of the process, we were thinking this way, we were doing things in such a such way. And then by the end of the transformation, we're doing things this other certain way. And everything that is being talked about in between should essentially lead up to that transformation and make it as tangible as possible without, as you said, any fat added. So no irrelevant facts, nothing that digresses. You don't go on tangents. Everything that you talk about in between should really lead up to that transformation. Yeah, I think the other thing that he also recommends as a way to actually find good stories to tell is to keep a journal and to make an effort to, he recommends do that every day, but to actually sit down and think about what happened in that day that were significant moments that have changed you as a person in a way, right? And those can be incremental changes, like mm-hmm. smaller changes that kind of made you think, oh, I, I've never thought about it that way or It made you think about a certain topic in a new way, but it can also be really profound changes, like life-altering changes. But the trick here is to really sit down and make an effort to take notes and to really think about those things. What he says is that you will end up with two kinds of notes. One would be anecdotes. Mm. Those are just interesting anecdotes to tell that are just fun and interesting. I think 
those things can already add a lot of value in business because if we talk about storytelling, I think general in business, we're not even great at anecdote telling. So I think anecdotes would already add a lot of value, but then also potential stories and approaching it that way. I think in a business context, you need to do a bit of translation to actually make that book work for you. So mm -hmm. from my point of view, it really depends on how much work you want to put into a book to actually make it work for you. If you really want it hand fed, I would give it five stars in the context of personal storytelling. If you mm -hmm. really want to use it for your sales enablement job and you don't want to put in too much work in actually translating yeah. those concepts into your day-to-day -day work, I would give it four stars. But for me personally, I like thinking things through and actually translating concepts from outside of enablement or outside of business into business. Yeah. So for me, it's a straight five-star read. So I can highly recommend it and also listen to the audiobook version, which is great. Obviously, the guy is a storyteller and that's really reflected in the audiobook as well. That's awesome. So you're saying there's hope for folks that don't have exciting lives like Matthew to tell good stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, think, I think the transformative aspect of the book that they mentioned in the subtitle is he mentioned one anecdote where he got a random phone call of a woman that read his book and she just basically was just crying on the phone because she basically started doing this exercise of writing down things every day. And that made her realize that her life is actually more exciting and that her life matters much more and impacts way more people than she thought. So I think it's a good excuse for self-reflection and a good excuse to actually stop in your tracks and think about what happened in a day. So in a way, that approach is kind of therapeutic. Some of the examples of stories that he tells have really moved me as well. So I think it really goes to show that people really connect with stories. And I think it's a, from a sales enablement point of view, it's a really great way to bring concepts to life, share examples, but also if you're mentoring people, a good way to actually share anecdotes and stories that show how you've approached problems in the past or mistakes that you've made in the past and really show that there's a different way to approach things. So lots of value in this book and I can definitely highly recommend it. I think on Amazon, it has 4.6 stars oh. from over 1000 ratings. So I think that's a real reflection of the quality of the book. So definitely highly recommended it. I like that. And we know from Todd Capone's transparency sale, you don't want to see a five-star across the board review. It means it's that's probably right. not good. So this is great. And a yeah. tip from Bill McGowan on storytelling. If you are storytelling in a business context, don't say, I'm about to tell a story. Just that's tell right. the story. That's his tip. So that's right. <laughs> the world's that's together. Right. That's right. Or the worst kind of story is when you tell what's happening in the end, in the very beginning. Yes. That's, that's the killer. So you might as well not bother. <laughs> All right. So change of pace. Just briefly want to point your attention to Stephanie Zorabian's job board. So that's an ongoing format that we want to point the community to. She puts in a lot of effort in actually curating that job board and breaking down all the roles that are going, including the connection link to the hiring managers. She classifies those jobs under remote, hybrid, and on-site, which also feeds nicely into one topic that we'll talk about later on, which is going back to the office. But we'll drop that link in the newsletter so anybody who's interested in exploring new opportunities or any hiring managers who also want to share roles in the future please make sure to follow Stephanie Zorabian on LinkedIn. It's a great resource. And as always, I highly appreciate Stephanie actually putting in that work for the community without asking for anything in return. So 
check that one out. She's incredible. I can't tell you how many people that I talk to who are like, oh, I think I want to change jobs. I'm like, follow Stephanie. She's like doing God's work over here. It's so incredible. <laughs> and I tap into this as well for jobs that I'm posting. So this is just next level as a resource. Awesome. Awesome. Now, the next point in our agenda is about quiet quitting. Article oh. from NPR. What is that one all about, Devin? There is so much to unpack. So if your LinkedIn, TikTok, and Instagram feeds have looked anything like mine over the past few months, I guess, I was going to say weeks, quiet quitting will not be a new term for us and, and for the folks listening. And articles on the subject sprout up daily. Like as I was preparing for this overview, there were five new articles today that came up. So for folks that are not familiar with this, if you haven't heard of quiet quitting, it's a concept that made waves in a viral TikTok video a few months ago. And it's really all about rejecting hustle culture in favor of work-life balance and setting professional boundaries. And quiet quitting does not actually mean quitting your job or not doing the job that you signed on to do. Although there are some very funny memes out there of folks like whispering their two-week notice to their managers, but we won't get into that. So what the idea is really about is, again, rejecting hustle culture, rejecting over-delivering with no reward and burnout, and employees are deciding to not go above and beyond. They're not working nonstop on nights and weekends or taking on tasks that they're not being paid to do. Especially like beyond just payment, there's not even a spot bonus, overtime, recognition, anything to acknowledge this above and beyond work that's being done. And a quote from the article says, if working harder and harder doesn't bring promised rewards because of the way the economy is structured, with power and wealth flowing upwards rather than being shared, why are we working furiously hard? So some folks on social media are arguing that quiet quitting is actually not a new concept at all, but that it's basic equity theory, which says if we put something in, we want to get something back. Others on this massive internet community are saying that quiet quitting is just boundary setting without actually having a conversation with anybody about it. There's another article that we'll share, Felix, for the newsletter on the subject from the Washington Post. And this is about how women and people of color tend to have the highest level of burnout and also don't have the luxury of quiet quitting because those groups are often stuck by choice or assumption of others in the organization of doing work that does not advance their career, like taking notes in meetings, scheduling meetings, making coffee and doing other tasks that are not part of their job that are just kind of expected. And that women's potential in general is often underestimated making them less likely to be promoted compared to their male counterparts, while people of color were disproportionately impacted during recent layoffs. So these groups are working harder, complaining less, and getting the short end of the stick when it comes to trying to build boundaries and a little work-life balance to navigate stress. Again, there are so many articles on the subject. I found myself starting with this NPR article and then going down a rabbit hole of all of the different stats and, and research that come out. And on the enablement side, if we look at some of the stats from that SEC report that we reviewed just a moment ago, it's 57% of enablement professionals identify as women. So enablement is a profession that definitely skews more female. And thinking about enablement roles and teams, we're often expected to engage in heroics, right? You know, we, we all know enablement as the fixer of broken things. But especially if enablement is a new role at a company and the organization is hiring one person to do the job to see if there's a there there and you have these teams of one that are in seat trying to do it all but burning out, but at the same time setting the expectation that enablement is going to go ahead and do all of these out-of-scope projects and an extraordinary amount of work single-handedly, oftentimes working 
beyond the hours they should be working. So there's a lot that we need to unpack, but there's also a group of folks that don't think quiet quitting is the right term. They think it's really, again, just an act of setting those boundaries, establishing work-life balance, but not, again, engaging in that conversation so that your employer knows like, hey, we're not going to take this anymore. And so what I'm thinking here is maybe instead of quiet quitting, we establish expectations, set boundaries, advocate for ourselves, but that's easier said than done. So I was in a new role and I'm going to probably butcher my storytelling here. So bear with me. I haven't read the book yet, but I was in a new role and I had a senior leader ask me to deliver something to them with less than 24 hours to turn it around. And I knew that that is a task that would typically take many days to complete and also something that shouldn't have happened until much, much further along in my onboarding journey at the company. So for fear of disappointing in my first few weeks and wanting to make sure that I was setting the right expectations, I thought I stayed up all night working on the project so that this leader would think I was a par and that they made the right decision about bringing enablement into the business. I was so mad at myself because I was setting the expectation in that moment that this leader could say, jump, and I would say, how high, no matter the cost to my mental well-being. And of course, two weeks later, I got a similar request because I had set that expectation with an even more aggressive timeline. And my response then was, I'm really looking forward to putting this together for you, but this actually takes much more time than what you're asking. And I'm going to need, I think I said like five days before I can turn that around and gave them a date. That was not received well. I definitely got pushed back because, again, I had done exactly what they wanted before. But it's really important to set those expectations early on if you can so that you don't fall into that abyss of unrealistic employer expectations. But I will say it's not easy to do. And if you ask me this question, you know, six years ago, I would have just done it. I would have worked all night. I would have been crying and I would have just been so burnt out. So it's definitely a muscle you have to build. It's something you need to be confident about. But I think. It's important to acknowledge that quiet quitting is one thing, and I understand why people are doing it, but if we can be more vocal about expectations and what we deserve as employees and that we need basic payment to do the tasks, we may see a shift. But Felix, from your point of view, do you think quiet quitting is the right approach to combat those unrealistic work expectations, or do you think it's a matter of just really being more vocal about what is expected and what we're being paid to do? Well, I think as always in life, it's not exactly black and white. Right. I think it's a combination of everything. You need to set the right expectations, set the boundaries, but then also make sure that within those boundaries, you operate at full steam and give it your all. There used to be a person at a previous job. She's now heading up Spotify for the APAC region. And she was head of product at the company that I worked for. And she was really famous for at five o'clock dropping everything and just walking out of the door. And expecting everybody in her department, which is a big department, to mm. do the same, right? Yeah. But within the nine to five, she would just go full steam and really set an example for everybody in terms of productivity, in terms of focus. And I think that's really the way to go. I think quiet quitting to me is more of a term that reflects people also not giving everything during working hours, you know, which doesn't need to be true. I think the term is a bit misleading and probably also born out of that puzzle culture point of view. And I think especially when we talk about sales and sustainability and sustainability of performance, I think having a healthy work-life balance and being able to sprint every now and then, but treat everything else like a marathon, I think that's secret yeah. to not burning down because the last thing 
you want and probably also your manager or your employer wants is that you put in so much effort all the time, work late nights, and then you're so burned out that you have to quit and right. uh, take a time off, right? Like that's in nobody's interest. And I think being able to set boundaries and being able to work in a structured way and have that space for high performance, for really a focused high performance, I think it's reflection of a healthy work culture. So definitely an advocate for that one, but not a big fan of the term quite quitting. I agree. Next up, we have another article, which is all about the return to work or work from home dynamic. Uh, what is that one all about? This is another one I could spend five hours on. So this is all about return to work. And I have very strong opinions about hybrid work and remote work. But let's focus on the article. So the Fortune article discusses the trend that kicked off on Labor Day weekend in the U.S., which is kind of ironic, where many companies announced return to work mandate. And the theme is three days a week in person. Companies on the list include Apple, Comcast, Peloton, and so many more. And so these companies mandated employees return to the office on a hybrid basis in a return to what they call, and I'm air quoting, normalcy. So I have, again, very strong opinions about this, but there are also a ton of articles on the subject. This is another one that daily there are articles about return to work, because at the end of the day, most folks are not happy about this seemingly very sudden mandate. And I think when Apple announced their return to work mandate, employees expressed very clearly that they were not thrilled. So there are survey results stating that 76% of Apple workers were dissatisfied with the return to work policy, and 56% said they were thinking about leaving the company because of it. And many other companies are following the same protocol, as we mentioned, a super generic announcement. So no conversation telling their team members there's a new way of working, and it's all about collaboration. But one stat that I think is worth noting, because obviously I am partial to one versus the other, Bank of America runs a homework series. And in a recent survey found that only 43% of 30 to 40 year olds have been working from home for the majority of their work week in September so far. But the bottom line, and there's another article that came up today that I didn't read, so maybe we'll reference it next week, is that hybrid work is here to stay. But so is that corporate obsession with return to office. So some of the causes for this surprise return to work are the state of the economy, the job market, real estate costs and investments, which I really think are the main reason for this, and companies wanting to fill space to justify their spend. And then again, I'm going to air quote here, building company culture. I have feelings. So one super quick note on the subject. I started a job after years of working in a hybrid model before that was a thing, a term that we used. It was fully in office and every day my manager would pace the floor. And like a horrible, like surprise jack in the box would stand behind my desk and my colleague's desk and go, hey, what you doing? What you working on? What do you got? And he would like try to catch us online shopping or something. It was awful. It felt like a little kid. My motivation was low. And I was a top performer in that role, but I felt like I was being babysat. I left the job very quickly because of that. Thankfully, moved into another job that was hybrid friendly. But when COVID shook things up in the world, I was hopeful that this would be at least like the one positive outcome from such a terrible time in the world. Like, let's shift people away from this idea that we have to be in office and turn office culture on its head. And for a minute, I really thought that this was the direction we were going in. And then the surprise announcements just a few short weeks ago. Impact on the enablement side. I've heard leaders recently say, we can't build relationships with our reps if enablement isn't in office. Enablement needs to be able to walk the floors. They need to know what's going on. In my opinion, so much inaccuracy here and more so we limit our talent pool by requiring that like butts in seat 
versus being able to hire the best talent. And so we go from having an ocean of amazing enablement talent that you just kind of displayed before to working with a puddle. So the question I have for you, Felix, it's a two-parter. Get ready. Do enablement teams need to be in person or should we be more open to remote and hybrid approach for these roles? And what is your take on this sudden, urgent return to work approach? I think they don't need to be in person. I'm operating my business out of Australia and uh, most of my clients are outside of Australia. So that's a reflection right there, even though operationally involved in some cases, but my business is typically not involved to a degree that you really need to be involved on a day-to-day basis and have that deal-based interaction, let's say. I think there's benefits to being in the office, but I think there has to be a purpose and there has to be a really clearly defined purpose and structure to actually make that happen. Just making people go to the office for the sake of it, like just expecting somehow great things to happen. I don't think that's the way to go. I think you need to really clearly define the days when certain functions are in the office to make sure that they actually interact. You really have to clearly define for yourself, but also for the people that work for you, what the purpose of those interactions are and how you can make the most out of your office day. It's backwards thinking to just assume that being in the office is better than being at home. There's pros and cons to it. I think especially for younger professionals, being in the office has a lot of value because Mm -hmm. if you're at the beginning of your career, a lot of the office experience is about socializing. It's a lot about that experience of being able to soak up all the influences that you're experiencing in an office environment. And Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty much lost. When I think back to my the start of my career, I wouldn't want to miss being on a floor with, you know, yeah. 100 sellers and everybody's my age and I'm just walking around and it feels like hanging out with your friends all day. <laughs> and at the same time, learning loads, having casual interactions with senior leaders and mm-hmm. being exposed to things that you would not necessarily be exposed to by sitting at your desk at home. So I think the challenge that professionals face around the world or we as the human race face around the world (laughs) is to basically predefine how the value that an office environment adds to people can be replicated in a hybrid environment and how some of those benefits that you have as an office environment, especially for younger people, can be replicated outside of the office. So what is the replacement? for those casual interactions? What is the replacement for that social experience that people might be looking for? How can we make that work and really make sure that we don't, as a society, end up being as just people sitting at home, staring at screens all day, moving over to the couch, (laughs) watching Netflix, and then going to bed and then doing the same thing over and over again. So I think- You're describing uh, my life. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think- There's a lot of gray area there that still needs to be defined. And I haven't come across a company that really has 100% nailed the model. And But I do think there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. So anybody who's got great case studies or great recommendations, please shoot them through. I'm always curious to hear about that. All right. So we're running out of time. Just briefly want to touch on a couple of things. So the Sales Enablement Collective is running the Sales Enablement Awards which is a great way to shine light on the great enablers in your life to really put them on a pedestal and really reward them for their efforts if they don't get the recognition that they deserve. So really recommend entering this one or nominating people in your network for that one. There's a bunch of events coming up that we will include in the newsletter. 
including the SES experience in Atlanta. There's a B2B summit in London coming up in October. The Anticon LX, I think it's called Global, which is a technology conference where I saw Pam Dittner, who's been a regular on nice. the State of Sales Enablement podcast, is also speaking. The Trust Enablement event is coming up. So the Trust Enablement Summit is the first time John Moore and Trust Enablement actually host a workshop-based event format. I'll be running a workshop at that event for the Apex stream of that event as well. So pretty much looking forward to that one. It's only $25, so you really can't lose signing up to that one. And yeah, that was pretty much it. Devin, thank you so much for joining and sharing your insights as always. Always enjoy hearing about your experience and your opinions on things. We'll be back next month with another episode of This Month in Self Enablement. Stay classy, San Diego, and <laughs> I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. My crude metaphor is, if you were to ask me to go out and find three really good Ruby on Rails developers, I wouldn't have the language to assess how good they are as Ruby on Rails developers. I literally don't have the language. I wouldn't know when question asked or the words to assess. And that's an extreme example compared to what we do, but I think in the same vein, the average recruiter, and even sometimes the CRO, they don't know how to ask the right questions to assess best practices.